right. You are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I am Brian Benham. And I am Greg Porter. Tonight's topic is how many projects are too many projects? Brian, how many active projects do you have in your shop right now? Uh, five or six active projects. Yes. Five or six. How many of them are personal projects versus how many of them are client driven projects? Uh, two of them are personal and then the rest of them are just things I want to build. Yeah. So so the uh, self-commissioned piece, as it were, on your self-commissioned pieces, the pieces that you want to build, how long have those been sitting in your shop? How long have those been active? Uh, the next one that my wife is really pushing me to get done has been on the bench for eight years. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping you weren't going to say like two weeks because I was going to feel pretty terrible. Oh, no, eight man. years. Yeah. Your wife is very patient if she's been waiting eight years for you to get one done. Yeah, well, she's been waiting a lot longer than that. Uh, my wife and I have been together for 23 years. And uh, when we first uh, moved in together, she wanted a coffee table. And I was like, cool, I'll build a coffee table. So I drew out a design and she's like, no, I don't like it. I, I want something more craftsman style. So she went and bought a uh we didn't have ikea in the neighborhood then we had some kind of thing called solder furniture or something so she got one of those things and uh, brought it home and wanted me to put it together and i was like no i'm gonna i'm gonna redesign this and build something else so i took that back and uh, we have not had a coffee table for 23 years <laughs> so yeah <laughs> well uh, i i think the reason we're talking about this topic, I think this is a very common issue among people who make things. We we all have very active imaginations. We're all very creative people. We understand, we can all see it in our heads, step by step. This is what I have to do first, second, third, fourth, and this thing's going to come out beautiful. And then we get distracted by the things that make us money. <laughs> whether whether that's stuff that we are doing in our shop or whether it's stuff outside of the shop that takes a huge amount of our time but we all have to make money we all have to eat and so our personal desire projects tend to get put on the back burner but we pick at them as we go so have you started that project is it a pile of rough lumber where's it at what stage is that project at so the uh, the coffee table project is still not a not a thing. But okay. The one that she wants is a coat rack. Um, the house that we moved in now doesn't have a coat closet, so she wants a coat rack. And uh, I have a prototype because I want it to be a sculptural piece. So I have a prototype uh, carved out of a a four by four piece of construction lumber. So the next step is to figure out joinery and then actually do it in uh, probably cherry wood. And uh, so, yeah, that's about where I'm at. And I, I totally agree with you that this is definitely a challenge for many, many creative people that we get easily distracted <laughs> on uh, on each project that we're going down. Well, it's, the, it's a little bit of the allure of the idea, right? I mean, that's why we're in a creative field is we like to chase ideas. There's, there's things that pop in our head and we want to see them through because we understand, you know, the end product could be better than what anything else we've ever seen, right? Or it solves the problem in a different way or whatever it is. And I I am no different, Brian. I fall victim to the same things. And I I share with people all the time my my little car that I drive around, my Carmen Ghia that that uh I started my YouTube channel with. I worked on it for 18 years before it became a car again. So it was a car 
and then it was disassembled and 18 years later it was a car again and there was a whole lot of of things that happened in the middle of that and people kept oh you're never going to get it done why do you even work on that why do you did it and it was because i could see the end right i could see the car that i wanted i had I had drawings of what it was going to look like, renderings of what it was going to look like. And it was pretty damn cool. It was like, yes, that's the car I want. That's exactly what I want. And, and that allure is pretty strong. And then all of a sudden I feel like, and I don't know if you're this way, Brian, but I suspect you are, is there's a, they go through phases. These, these long term projects go through phases where first it's the idea. And it's like, oh, I'm really excited. I'm going to go out and buy the exact wood that I want to use. I'm going to look for the right grain pattern. I'm going to look for all the things that are going to make this thing perfect. And then you set that over in the corner because it's got to, it's got to acclimate for at least six months or a year or whatever excuse we're going to use. <laughs> and then, and then you get on to a thousand other things and you look over in the corner and you see that piece of wood. And it's like, Oh, maybe it's time. Well, I don't know exactly how I'm going to detail this thing. So I'm going to let it marinate just a little bit longer. But then all of a sudden one day that piece of lumber comes out of the corner and it goes on the workbench and you start getting serious about it. Once you get serious about it, that critical mass picks up and, and all of a sudden you get a little bit of traction. And if you're, if you're working on a very difficult project, which a lot of us do, like, even if you worked on it eight hours a day, every day, it's not something you're going to get done in a week. It's something you're going to get done maybe over the course of three or four months or maybe three or four years. And, but once you start gaining traction on it, then you start working on it more and more and more. And then it it gets finished a lot faster, you know, than the seven or eight years that it sat in the corner. But uh, all of those things said, I think that's a pretty common thing. You know, there there's the idea sitting in the corner and like with you, you built a prototype. How long did you work on the prototype? And is it a fairly complete prototype? You said joinery still hasn't happened, but form-wise? Form-wise, yeah. Form-wise, it's totally complete. And it's been sitting in the corner. So what what happens to me is, since this is what I do for a living is make things, that I'll get a client project. And so whatever personal project I have has to go into the corner because yeah. I have to do the client project. And the client project is what pays the bills. And, um, so now this particular client project that I'm working on right now, uh, has like a thousand holes I need to drill and steel. And so the last three days I've literally stood in front of a drill press, drilling holes for three days. Like <laughs> part of my soul has died while drilling holes. But what happened during that, that whole drilling time of boredom is that when our minds get bored, it wanders and it starts to think of other things. And so now while I'm drilling holes, I thought of three more things that I would like to build or try to build or explore. And then uh, another client project uh, has come along and uh, I have that lined up for the next thing after this one. And the next client project is the new cool shiny thing. So I want to start it right now and forget about this current client project because this current client project is in that stage of project where you're just, you've got all the fun, creative stuff done. And so now you just have the work of sanding and drilling holes and the monotonous tasks. So you're ready just to be done with it. So then once I get that client project done, then I have to decide, do I want to explore one of the three projects I thought of while I was drilling the holes? Or do I go back to the coat rack thing that my wife wants me to finish? And then... What am I going to do if I start to the coat rack thing and then a new client project comes on? Because, of course, I'm always looking for more work to fill my schedule to keep my bills paid. So it's like this vicious cycle of 
of each idea in each project uh, cannibalizes the time of the others. Yeah, I I see it as an inverse pyramid. You you start working on one thing and that one thing begets three or four children. And then as you work on those, they beget three or four more children. And before you know it, you've got 100,000 projects that you really want to do. And I, I share this with some of my uh, manufacturing buddies that, that helped me in my guitar tool business, that I literally have sketchbooks full of products to develop with no time to develop them. And each product that we've made takes about a year to go from the sketch that I put in my sketchbook, making time, making the prototype, revising the prototype, and then producing the very first unit. So all of those things, that that first article uh, that we that we have for retail is a year away from the day that that I start going, okay, it, we're going to do this one. And you can imagine the frustration. I probably have at least 100 things in my sketchbook, at least 100 different products. The, the sketches are pretty good. Like, this is viable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and no time to do them. But it, it but you know, it, I never hold back from from drawing more in that sketchbook because there there might be a million dollar one in there, you know, and and so you don't ever want to miss the million dollar one. But then you have to prioritize those and you have to look at them realistically and say, I will probably never get to this before I die. <laughs> and, yeah. and on top of that, there's you know, I'm looking over here uh, at my my stash of wood for guitar building. I've got easily 40 or 50 guitars here in the corner that are that are ready to be built. And most of them probably won't happen for another 15 or 20 years. And yeah. some of them may not happen while I'm on this planet. You know, some uh, it's interesting. Um, as guitar builders, one of the things that that is sought after is lumber that was cut down 40, 50, 60 years ago because it's old growth, tight ring lumber. And I've got a pile of ebony in the corner that was cut down 40 years ago and milled. And you want to talk about some dry stuff that's jet black and arrow straight. Like it's the, it's the most perfect ebony in the world, but the guy who had it was going to build a bunch of guitars out of it and got too old and he couldn't do it. So he had to sell off his stash or his family had to sell it off. I don't know which one, but a lot of the pieces of lumber over there came from other guitar builders who decided they were never going to get to whatever project they bought it for. So yeah, it's, I have it's, some guitar blanks that I bought from a guy that decided he was never going to use them. Yeah, and you know, in all honesty, that's some of the most valuable lumber out there. I looked at, uh, I was over at another guitar builder's house for a class. Now this guy teaches class on how to build guitars. He has, I think, two students a week almost every week of the year. So there's somewhere on the range of 40 to 50 guitars that go out of his shop every year. And students bring their own lumber with them, but he often builds, has a two or three builds going in the background. So as they're doing uh, a process, he's doing it with them on one that he's doing. And he had a pile of Brazilian rosewood, which you can't you can't import that stuff anymore. The stuff that's in this country is all we're ever going to get. Uh, at least that's that's the the rules right now. And he had a stack of it in his basement. He's like, yeah, selling off some of my Brazilian rosewood. Like you never hear you never hear those two words in the same thing. Selling Brazilian rosewood. Th- those don't go together. I guess that's three three words. But uh, it's rare when people do that because you can't get it anymore. But he had come to the realization that he had more than he would use in his lifetime. So he was selling it off. Like, well, okay, we'll yeah. take it. Uh, so it's interesting that way. Uh, one thing, 
here's a question for you. Have you ever had a long-term project that you finally said, you know what, it's not going to happen. So I'm going to clear that out of my life. Uh, no, no, I, uh, I, I hold hope that I will be able to, uh, accomplish it someday. Right now I'm 46 years old. So I figure I still have a half a lifetime to go. Yeah. So, uh, I I'm trying to be optimistic that I will be able to accomplish stuff. Now there's things that I know that I probably won't ever, um, get there. Like, uh, when I was first starting out, I was like, I want to build everything in my house myself. Like, uh, you know, spatulas, like when you're woodwork, you want to build everything spatulas and <clears throat> make my own toaster and like everything, just make it all myself. Just so I could say that I made everything here, but, right. uh, I, that that'll never happen, but that was never really a realistic goal. That was just like one of those things that you thought like, Oh, it'd be cool if I could just say that everything I own, I made, but, uh, I, I still feel like I've got another good 40 years. To go. I see this too. So um, interestingly enough, I, I don't know if I've ever shared this, this on the podcast, but right out of school, I worked for a, a guy and he lived in a Frank Lloyd Wright house. And it was a, it was a house that was built by Taliesin students after Frank died. Frank died, I think in 59, the house was finished in 62, but Frank designed it with his studio. But the whole house was full of Frank Lloyd Wright furniture. And if you look up what original pieces of Frank Lloyd Wright furniture go for it's it's a small mint and the entire house was furnished with stuff out of the frank lloyd wright catalog and one of the one of the things that you you think about as a as a designer as a builder is replication of an idea right frank was not to my knowledge was not really a woodworker but he had a bunch of people around him who were and they were able to take his drawings and ideas and make the prototype, make the the first article, whatever. And he would say, yes, this is exactly what I want. Now make a thousand of these or whatever the number was. And, and when we look at ourselves as uh, I have the same goal, Brian, I want every piece of furniture in my house to have been made by these two hands. And when you look at what that really takes, the time commitment that that takes, you can't do anything else, but make your own furniture. <laughs> And so right. it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, how am I, how am I going to make money during that time? But, but I think when you, when you look at, okay, can I make one chair for my dining room? Yeah, I could probably do that. And then could somebody else replicate it or, you know, how, how can I do that? And that's a, a weird way to think about it, but, but that's one way to scale what you're trying to do, or maybe, maybe as makers, uh, it might be more interesting to have a kitchen table full of chairs that are bought, but with one that's handmade. And I don't know. I, I, I struggle with that one a lot. Yeah, uh, I look so, around the house every day and and want to, oh, I need to do that. I need to do that. Nope. Don't have the capacity. Yeah. So I think you can create capacity though, by efficiencies. So mm. uh, like what the first uh, piece of furniture I made, well, not the first, but one of the first piece of furniture I made early on was a bed for my daughter. And um, that thing took me like a month and a half, almost two months to make. But now we're uh, 18 years later from that point, and I, I, can, uh, I can make a bed in a week now, a week and a half. Right. right. So just by I've improved my tooling and I've improved my skills um, and uh, how I design things so they go together easier and easier to build. Um, so that has uh, created a lot of efficiencies now. So now, like before, I thought there's no way I can make enough furniture to furnish my entire house. Now, if I had enough money, so I wouldn't have to take on client work during that time, I could totally knock out 
a whole house full of furniture within a few months. Yeah. Just just because of the efficiencies. Well, and there's a there's another thing too. I can't remember. Um, gosh, I want to say it was David Pesciuto. I was watching one of his episodes years ago, and he talked about batching things. If you're going to make one, make twenty, or you know whatever whatever the number is that you're going to make. Because once you get the table saw set up for an inch and a half minus three whiskers, you can run so many boards through there and not worry about it. It's that initial setup. And, and, or, you know, if you, if you've got an operation where you're, you're jointing, planing, ripping, it's so easy to do multiple boards doing that and get them all to the exact same size and, and have all your stock done where in our world, a lot of times the first one that we make that prototype, it might have some funkiness to it that we got to figure out and work through but number two is going to be really good and i find myself all the time doing number one as a solo thing and and you're like ah, i should really i should really make two or three of these instead of just one no 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 we got to work through number one get the detail right once we get through number one then we'll make two three and four and that you're right that is a great way to scale things is is making a bunch at the same time. Yeah. So to to kind of continue down that uh, thought path of efficiencies, so you can work through more projects. Uh, shop organization is is probably huge. Like I have been uh, watching Adam Savage's YouTube channel, and he's done quite a yeah. few shop organization projects uh, here in the last little bit, and it's just really got me really paying close attention to how my shop is organized with his um, uh, idea of first order of retrieval, like make everything that you use ready to go. And my current project is all metalworking right now. And my shop is set up for woodworking. And so basically yeah. I pushed all my woodworking tools out to the wall and I didn't have a lot of um, uh, metalworking tools. I didn't have a lot of money to buy metalworking tools. So I went down to Harbor Freight and I bought a, one of the cheap of everything and set up a metalworking shop inside my woodworking shop. So now this the inner circle is all a metalworking shop. And um, it, it pains me that like, oh, I need, I broke the drill bit or I broke the tap. So now I got to climb over all this stuff to get to that corner where I pushed all that stuff back into to get that drill bit or whatever tool I need or whatever. And it's just, it's really frustrating not to have it perfectly organized like I had it when it was all set up as a woodworking shop. It is, it is very difficult. I was going to mention this too. It's very difficult to work in multiple mediums and I work in in steel and aluminum and I work in wood and in the same shop, in the same space, on the same benches at the same time. <laughs> and, and, uh, it can, it can be a real booger. Number one, that uh, the tool sets are completely different, but number two, the dust and mess that they create are very different in the woodworking world. If you have your dust collection game on point, you can keep a pretty clean shop in the metal working world. Good luck. That stuff goes everywhere. There's no way to contain it. The only way that I've found is to work up against uh, concrete walls as much as you can and let everything hit the concrete wall. And then you'll have like a four foot radius around that wall of things that you need to clean on a daily basis to keep all the, the fine metal powder mm -hmm. out of everything. But if you let that contaminate your wood projects, you will drive yourself nuts because it embeds itself into the fibers of the wood and you can't get it out. It's, it's terrible stuff. But uh, back to, back to thinking about how many projects is too many projects. 
I do want to say this, this piece that I categorize projects always in short term and long term. And there are some long term projects that I'm totally okay with taking a long time. Number one, either because the detail is so complex or understanding that this isn't a money maker, or it's not something on the front burner, but I do like to pick at it. Like every once in a while, it's like, oh yeah, you know what? Let's put an hour or two on that one and and see what we can develop. And slowly but surely, it goes back to, I think I have shared this before, uh, the power hour. And if you've got a project that you're doing for a client and you're set up and you've worked all day doing said project, once you wrap that project for the day, if you just say, you know what? I'm going to put an hour in on my stuff today. All the tools are out that you need. The space is already dirty. Let it rip for an hour. And it's amazing in that one hour at the end of your day, how quickly you can work because you're not fumbling for the things. And of course, everything has to line up, right? It has to be similar in, in terms of, of uh, what you're doing and the tools you're using and that sort of thing. But that one hour adds up really quickly. And all of a sudden, over the course of two or three weeks, you've got, you know, three or four days worth of work into this project and it'll push it along. But uh, that's the long-term ones. The short-term ones, you mentioned a coat rack. If you don't have a coat rack in your house and I run into this all the time, I do projects that are make it work projects so that the other one can simmer on the back burner for a while. So let's just get it done. It's not going to be pretty. It's going to be ugly. It's just going to be very utilitarian. Go. And then we'll, we'll do the the nice looking presentable one as I get time and and I I'll pick at those things so that's the the short term and the long term stuff that I look at all the time in the shop yeah so kind of going back to the coffee table thing like a coffee table that you buy at IKEA is only a few hundred bucks I could have just kept that coffee table right and then we'd have a coffee table and then I could just like work on it whatever but yeah my wife's a good sport so it was it all worked out uh, uh, good but uh, yeah that's a, that's a really good point to 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 like just get get it done to a certain way to where it's workable so you can have the space to do the other things you want to do yeah and one other thing that neither of us have mentioned yet is project storage that's always been a bugaboo number one because how do you plan to store something that you don't know what it is yet and you know how big is it how much room is this going to take up how many of them are there all those kind of things but uh, when I, when I was working on the shop here, one of the things I did was I bought a bunch of postal totes, um, uh, from Uline, I think, and I have labels on all of them. They sit on shelves. The shelves are all the same size. Like it's, it's a unit system. I think you saw it when you were over here, all mm -hmm. those green totes that I have. Yep. And the reason I bought those was for storing pieces and parts of projects, knowing that I would have some long-term projects that I need a place to put them so they don't take up my bench space because that's where I work. Uh, so getting everything out of the way. But it was amazing how quickly those things filled up with half-baked projects. <laughs> and I'm to the point now where I don't have any more project storage and I need I need triple what I have. Um, but Adam Savage, I think when, when you look at some of his modular things that he's done in his shop, he has a really good system for restoring some of those things out of the way, even though I don't think he's ever talked about it in that particular way. You can, you can see when you look around his shop, you know, just pause his videos and start looking around the corners there. And you can see that, that he uses some of that for project storage as well. Yeah. Um, I, I lost a train of thought because another one jumped in my head. I don't know if it's still out on the internet, but 
a long time ago, uh, you know how Google Maps, uh, well, maybe you don't, I don't even know if Google Maps still does this, maybe it's not there, but you used to be able to uh, upload a 360 of your business to Google uh-huh. Maps so people uh-huh. could go down your Google Street View and then go through the front door of your business and use the 360, uh, the Google Street View to check out your um, store. Well, Adam Savage, of course, doesn't want anybody to know where his shop is located. So they somehow made a uh, manhole in the street somewhere, be the entrance to his shop. And then you can do a, a Google street walk around of his shop. Um, I don't know where that manhole was at. It was like an Easter egg fun thing that they did a while ago. Like, Hey, if you go through the mission and you click on every manhole on the street, you might find the entrance to his shop to look around and you can zoom into all the stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, he has it organized. So yeah, a little off, little off topic, but I thought that was worth mentioning because I've tried to find it and I never could uh, find it. I didn't spend enough time doing it. So I don't know if it's still there or, or not, but yeah. Well, maybe somebody who's watching this video or listening online can leave it in the comments if they've found it before and where they might've found it. I would love to, uh, I would love to go in there and figure that out for sure. Yeah. So uh, kind of back to our, our topic a little bit, but still in the same vein as, as Adam Savage is uh, one thing that I've noticed. um, I know some people, when I said I went and bought a bunch of Harbor Freight tool cringed because Harbor Freight is known for not being high quality tools. And, uh, that is, that is, I have found that to be true using these tools, but, uh, they're better there. I, I made it work with what I got to throw back to an old, to an old, uh, episode of ours. Um, I didn't have enough money to buy the hundred thousand dollars of equipment that I have in woodworking to duplicate that in the, in the metal shops. So I just had to make it work and this equipment, it breaks or it's just, not quite accurate enough. So I had to modify it to fit my purposes. And one thing that I have come to the realization of that Adam Savage has nailed down is his sort of boxes with every nut and bolt known to man, because the great thing about Harbor Freight tools is it's all metal that's just bolted together. So if something falls off, you just need to get another bolt and bolt it back on. Or if the motor burns up, you can just unbolt that motor and, and bolt a new motor on. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Like, like if something breaks, it's like, okay, I'm just going to like weld it back on there. And then I'm, I'm back to work. And that's a total 360 from my woodworking experience with things like Festool that uh, are all proprietary equipment. So I bought a whole bunch of Festool over the years thinking that I was investing in my business and Festool, it breaks just like all the big box stores breaks. Uh, But you have to wait two weeks for that part to come in or to mail it back. And that's two weeks of not making a paycheck. Um, So it's a long story short. If, if all my tools, I could just walk up to a sort box and whip out that uh, uh, thing and just bolt it back on and not have to drive to the hardware store every hour. That would be great to help uh, keep my all my projects going and being able to complete more projects at a time. Yeah, I you know I we talked about it already. We we've covered this topic pretty hard, but at some point in time, sometimes you just need a tool for three or four days. And I know that sounds very first world uh, <laughs> type of mentality, but you know, we're, we're in a, we're in an economy where you got to make things happen and time is money. And sometimes just having that tool in your hand for a couple of days is really all you need, but then it goes in the drawer 
And two years from now, when you're doing a little this, that, or the other thing, you've got that tool. It's going to be good enough to get it done. If you were doing it eight hours a day, uh, you know, five days a week, 365 days a year, whatever, that tool is not, not going to last very long. But uh, they are definitely, you know, when you have a one-off type project, there's there's no reason to invest in, uh, you know, a DynaBraid <laughs> grinder for, you know, six or $700 when you could get one for 35 bucks, it's going to make your world go. And, you know, my rule is I use a cheap tool until it breaks. And then I buy a more expensive tool the second time because I've made enough money to afford it. But uh, I think a lot of people have a, a very similar philosophy when it comes to tools. That yeah. Way. I was just going to say that one of the things now that I have like a sandblasting cabinet as someone who likes to patina metal, uh, I getting down to bare metal quickly, that's going to be a game changer, even though I keep having to bolt it back together. And there's all kinds of design issues with the Harbor Freight model, but I'm slowly overcoming those as I go. And someday I'm going to be able to make enough money with some new patina processes with sandblasting that I'll just, it'll just make sense to go buy a higher quality cabinet. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, back on the topic of of how many projects is too many projects, I I find myself, uh, I, we discussed this before we hit the record button, I'm getting ready to buy another project car and I've got two guitars that I'm building and I've got several prototypes halfway or three quarters of the way through development in my shop <laughs> and, 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 but I look at it and I think at the end of the day, to answer the question, how many is too many? Um, most of us do what we do if you're in the maker world, because uh, it's what makes us tick. And that curiosity and solving those problems and seeing those solutions through, uh, I think that's it's incredibly important for us to feed that animal and not just go, you know what, I need to be pragmatic here. Uh, I've got five projects in my shop and a, and a sixth one really is just going to be a distraction. <laughs> I think I I think that's the complete wrong attitude. I think if your brain says you need a sixth project, then you need a sixth project. I think we also have to have the discipline to know that at some point, we all know people who are not finishers, who can't finish a single thing. They go from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. There's a guy that I watch on YouTube, and I'm not going to name him by name. But he he likes to restore cars, but he never, ever finishes one. And every time he gets to a spot in a restoration where it's like, oh, man, he's making progress. This is going to work. He buys another car and completely drops the one he's been working on. I'm like, wait, 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 just go back and finish one because they're really fun to drive. Like once you understand how fun they are to drive, it will motivate you to finish more cars. But we have to have that discipline in our head that says, okay. At some point, you got to finish these things. Like you can't just leave them all dangling out there. But if you've got a really important idea, I think that it's equally as important to chase it. And sometimes in chasing that idea, you learn something about the other projects that you have going on. Sometimes you learn that you want nothing to do with that idea anymore because it's just not something you're good at or something that's really interesting. You thought it was more interesting than it is. And other times, uh, I'm I'm looking at, like I said, buying another project car and it's because somebody got into it and they realized it wasn't for them. They welded a few pieces of sheet metal on, they realized how difficult it was and that it wasn't coming out like they wanted it to. So they let the pro they're letting the project go. And at some time, 
we we sometimes have to come to that realization that this one's not for me. And uh, anyway, there are people out there in a lot of cases, even woodworking projects that will buy projects from people. You know, if there's enough value in it, if they see the the finish line from you, why not? I mean, I, I know if I if I saw somebody that started a guitar project and it was the lumber that I wanted or the style that I wanted, all the components, I'd have no problem buying that project from them and finishing it. Like that would not be an issue for me. Yeah. So uh, I think one thing we should probably touch on is how to how to discipline ourselves to finish projects. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> we were both like, okay, I hope you had an idea. <laughs> I'm ready to hear how you do this, Brian. So uh, I, I one thing that uh, the the client projects have really taught me the discipline because I have to finish those. One because a client is waiting, and two, my mortgage company is waiting. So. Those those things uh, uh, have uh, taught me a lot of discipline, and uh, there's two things that two tools that I use uh, to help me move my projects down the line. And one is time boxing. So, a lot of people talk about this, and um, I, I don't believe in the philosophy that you have to get up at like 4 a.m. in the morning. I'm more of a night person. I'm more productive at night. So. As long as you put your 15 hours in a day or whatever you you need to do, it doesn't matter what slot that is. But like when I get up in the morning, I have a couple hours where it's just me and some design time to design future projects because that kind of curtails my my need to uh, get distracted in the shop to start different projects because I've kind of satisfied that. And then like, okay, so from noon to five, I'm going to work on this client's projects. And then from five to seven, I'll do something else or whatever, whatever that is. And then a Gantt chart. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of Gantt charts online. Some of them are better than others, but uh, I ended up just making my own in an Excel spreadsheet. So that way I can color code it the way I want it and it operates the way I want it. So if I need five, five days for a project, I type in five days and it'll reschedule everything out after that uh, automatically for me in that. And that way I can know exactly where I'm at and where my free time is at. And when a new client calls, I can say, okay, I can plug you into September and confidently know that I can complete their project in September. The number one motivator for me to get projects done. And, and again, this is on the making money side, not chasing my own dreams, right? Is deadlines. When you have a deadline uh, and somebody on the other end has a paycheck for you, <laughs> your your motivation to hit that deadline is going to be extreme. And, and, you know, sometimes you wind up putting 12, 14, 16 hours in a day into a project over the course of, you know, several weeks of, of really pushing hard because of a deadline. And sometimes that's, you know, you, you, fall victim to your own hands because you've procrastinated or something else. And sometimes it's not by your own hand because you were waiting on materials or, uh, you know, some outsourced piece of the project to get done. But the number one motivator for me is, is a schedule. If, if I take the time to work through the order of operations, this needs to happen before that, that needs to happen before that. And if I'm going to, you know, do some finishing work, it's going to have to be a long day. So for me, that's on a weekend. And I have these three weekends available, so I have to have everything ready to finish by Friday evening, so that on Saturday morning I can set up my spray area, clean it out, get all you know all the dust evacuated, and then you have enough time to spray it, let it dry, and then you know do whatever you're going to do after that. Um, those types of things are, I wouldn't say they're motivating. That that's the wrong way to say it, but those are the way 
the discipline things that I do to get things done. And, and then there are the projects that, that have no discipline to them because they're just fun and I don't want them to become work. And some of those exploration projects that are, that are just fun, you let them be fun and, and you don't worry about them too much. But at some point in time, if you decide, you know what, I really want to get that coffee table done because my wife's been bugging me for 23 <laughs> years, then, then you look at it and you parcel it out. You know, hey, I'm going to spend half a day this week and half a day next week and half a day the week after. And uh, if I do that, I can see the horizon in in six months uh, when my anniversary is, I'm going to have that thing ready and I'm going to be able to give it to my wife for my 24th anniversary. Yeah, whatever. I'm not trying to. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll pencil that in on the Gantt chart for the 30th <laughs> wedding anniversary. Uh, there you go. And, but but it's those types of things. Once you put it on paper and once you say it out loud, I, I am a firm believer in uh, the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And that doesn't mean that that I have a crystal ball or magic powers or anything like that. It's once you say something out loud like that, the back of your brain starts working to solve that problem, even though you're not thinking about it. And it's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Christmas is is uh, six months away. And if I start working now, just pecking at it, you know, a few hours a week, I'll be able to hit Christmas. Yes, I'll be able to do this. And then you start getting excited about it. And then you know how that goes. You you hop on uh, all the various websites, order all the things that you need to order. And before you know it, your project's getting ready to be done. And uh, it's December 24th and you're <laughs> putting it in a box and wrapping it up. Yeah. So that kind of brings me to another another thought um, along the lines of a well-stocked shop with all Adam Savage's Sortimo boxes. But when you start a new project to make a list of all the stuff you need, walk your shop to see what you need to order and list of materials and then order it all at once. Don't wait to say like, well, I don't need the hinges till towards the end. I'll order the hinges because then all of a sudden that hinge is back ordered or, or something. So like order it all at once. So that way you have it all. And there's no excuses not to keep going, not to keep that project moving. Well, and this goes back to my postal bins. That was, that was one of the big reasons uh, I got those is similar. You know, if you start ordering parts for fill in the blank, and you get a box from Amazon one day and you get another box from Tacoma screw another day and another box another day. And you start setting those on your bench and then they get cleared off your bench and go somewhere else. If they don't all live in the same spot, when it comes time to build that thing, you're going to be searching around your shop for that box of cap head screws uh, that are metric odd size or something like that, that you need. You're never going to find them. But if you have those bins that you can put in and put a label on it and say, Hey, this is for, uh, you know, that crazy skateboard that I wanted to put together or whatever, whatever that thing is, the RC jet that I'm going to build, <laughs> uh, you know, all of those things live together. And, you know, I, I find myself every once in a while, uh, it's going to happen to me here this month. As a matter of fact, uh, my wife's going to be out of town for several weeks. And so my weekends are going to look completely different while she's out of town than when she's normally in town, because we're not going to do anything together. It's, it's going to be just me. And I know I will pull one or two of those bins out and stare into them and go, you know what? I think I can make this project happen over this weekend because since my wife's not home, I can make noise until three in the morning and nobody's going to know the difference. And so I'll have these huge blocks of time available to me. And that's exactly what I'll do is I'll pull some of those bins out and look at them and say, okay, I have all the pieces and parts I need for this project. Let's go. So, yeah. So one to, to go back to your postal bins, um, I don't, I have a similar system. Um, I have postal piles 
not necessarily yep. Ben's, but um, the my biggest problem, and you touched on it, is labeling. I think you had yeah. to, very important to label things because I've gone back to a pile a year later, and I was like, what What is this for? Why was what is this part for? Is this just a piece of scrap wood that got thrown in here or whatever? Yeah, I don't need this. And then I'll I'll use it for something else. And then when I do go to build that thing, it's be like, oh, that's what that was for. I don't have it anymore. Got to make another one. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I've I found, and again, you know, the older you get, I, I've got two years on you, Brian, I think. Uh, the older you get, the more the more you find these little details. One of the things on labeling, like if you use adhesive labels, they're hard to peel off and they're hard, you know, like you, you don't want to mess with them once you get them on there. But if you just use like binder clips, you can clip little things to your stuff and then it becomes this very flexible thing that you don't have to worry about the permanence. Um, and that that's one little thing that I found very helpful. But uh, I think I think right now, in, in contrast to what you've got, Brian, is I've got, uh, I think it's six projects on my benches right now. And of those six projects, five of them are business related that have to get done. And uh, it becomes a, a weird uh, maneuvering of piles to work through one pile of parts, get to the next pile of parts and not get in the way of one project in front of the other in front of the other. And uh, a little bit frustrating because all of my fun projects have gotten <laughs> sidelined for the next, uh, oh, the next few weeks anyway. Like I said, with my wife out of town, I'll definitely throw some of the some of the business stuff to the side and have a little bit of fun. But I'll be able to knock out a lot of that business stuff in short order. Yeah. So uh, one one other thought that uh, came to mind was um, hiring help. I mm -hmm. I don't I really I work from home, so whoever I, if I hire anybody, they would have access to my house and all that. So that's a really hard hard thing to uh to get over and then also i work weird hours like you mentioned three o'clock in the morning that's if i can't sleep i get up and i go out in the shop and i fart around and so then if i'm if all of a sudden three o'clock start time a.m ends up at six o'clock a.m i might go back to bed for a couple hours before i get back up so my my whole lifestyle is not really uh inducive to having an employee but uh as i've gotten older and um my body's hurting and I want to take on bigger projects and I just need someone to help lift things and all that. I've, I've been really starting to think about like, how can I make an apprentice type situation work or somebody that has to work with me part-time a couple of days a week or something. Yeah. And I've thought about that an awful lot too. And, and similarly, I work outside of my home, but, but the projects that I do here are in my house, right? So how do you say, Hey, I need you to work on Monday and Tuesday. I'm not going to be there at all. So you're going to have full reign of the shop, but I need you to do X, Y, and Z. And the way I've always organized that in my head is what, what are some things that are either preparatory uh, steps that would set me up so that when I walk in the shop, I, I always go back to uh, our, our house in Kansas City at one point in time, I realized uh, I was taking licensing exams. I was working just insane amount of hours because I had a lot of projects going on um, at work. And like, I realized the two hours that it took on the weekend to mow my grass was really a hindrance because I had all these other things. And, you know, at some point I wanted to, to live like a human being too. And I hired a, a guy 
that that had a mowing operation to do my grass. And I would come home on Wednesday afternoon and the lawn looked perfect and I didn't have to lift a finger to make it happen. And that wasn't like the most important thing in my world, but it relieved me from having to do that. But when I got home, it was like, oh my God, this is so nice to have this step out of the way. I don't have to worry about that this weekend. And to the same extent, I could see material prep. Hey, I just need somebody to square up all this stock and cut it to rough length. That's not, that doesn't take any major amount of technique, but it might cut two hours out of your day. And those are the types of things where, you know, if you just told somebody there's a bunch of rough lumber lumber here, I need it cut to these specs that could get you, you know, two hours down the way without you having to babysit it. But then there's, then there's the whole insurance thing. There, there's a lot that goes with that, but yes. yeah, there's a, it's a big step to go from no employees to one employee. I think if you have one employee, yeah. it's easier to add three, four and five, but yeah, but yeah. And my, my business insurance like doubled, but uh, yeah. yeah, that that's insurance just unexpectedly doubled. And then if I were to add a, an employee, that would be even a huge jump yeah. in insurance and then payroll to figure out payroll and payroll taxes. And, oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's a huge jump. Yeah. I'm talking myself out of the whole idea now. It's just well, like all the paperwork and the extra costs. It's not just like you're going to hire them for X amount of dollars an hour. It's X amount of dollars an hour plus all the other overhead that comes with it. Your first employee is going to cost way more than you. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh but you know even even in your world brian and I, I think other people are probably this way so it's good to talk about is if if you had you know somebody young doesn't even have to be a skilled person come in and empty the dust collector every week how long does it take you to pull your dust out of your dust collector it's not an easy task right the the barrel comes out you got to pull the sack out of it you got to take it somewhere and then yeah. uh, put the yeah. new one in there, get it all set back. Uh, you know, I mean, small things, sweep the floors and stack, you know, if there's lumber sitting out, make sure it's all stacked up this way. I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a that's an interesting problem. Well, uh, I hope everybody has found some of this interesting. I, again, I know all of us suffer from multiple project disorder. <laughs> and, sure. and some of us suffer more from... Uh, not being able to close the deal than others. And, and some people are really great at finishing, but I hope our conversation here has helped you, number one, realize you're not alone, but number two, maybe giving you some tools to overcome some of those long-term projects that have been sitting over in the corner for quite a while. Yeah, so if uh, if you've made it this far on the podcast and you're a finisher and you want to finish this episode and all our past episodes, you can find uh, all our past episodes at themakersquest.com. You can find me, uh, Brian Benham at brianbenham.com. And you can find